Well, turn with me, if you will, over to John chapter 18. It's the beginning of a new year for us here at Trinity, but it's also the end of a season for us. A long season that we've spent in the Gospel of John, following the twists and turns of Jesus' life and ministry. Beginning of a new year, we've reached the end of that story. For the next couple of months, we're going to be slowly unpacking chapters 18 to 21 of John, where Jesus' life comes to an end, brutally, where Jesus' life is restored powerfully, and where Jesus sends out a people marked by his death and resurrection to represent him in the world. We're going to slowly but surely unpack it to understand why we need what Jesus did and what Jesus calls us to once we've latched hold on him. We're going to start that journey today. There's some sadness to it. I remember, I still vividly remember the first biography that I ever read as a kid. I was a nerdy kid. I was reading biographies. Guilty. I remember reading, I won't tell you who it was about, you'd really know how nerdy I was. Let's just say I, I got attached to this guy. I felt like I knew him. I enjoyed his life. I was inspired by it, educated by it. And you know what happened at the end? He died. <laughs> happens at the end of every biography that you read. I remember crying. As a kid, I remember, I remember where I was sitting, sitting on the side of my bed in my room as a kid and crying when this man died, who had died 150 years earlier. It's never surprising when a biography ends and the character you've come to love dies because it's inevitable. It's even less surprising in the case of Jesus because we're all so familiar with his death. I shouldn't say we're all. Maybe you haven't. Heard much about Jesus? You're here because you want to hear about him? I know a lot of you, though, probably most of you. If there's anything you know about Jesus, it's probably that he died. That that's important to Christians. So one of the keys to us connecting with the message of Jesus' death is to try to put ourselves in the shoes of the people who lived through those events. To try to get back in that time where we experience it with them. To enter empathetically into their world and imagine what it would have been to watch the person upon whom you have pinned all of your hopes for this life and the life to come be beaten, be tortured, and be killed publicly and in a humiliating way. To imagine what it was to, be, to have been them. That takes a lot of work, but with God's help we're going to do it together. It would have been so challenging for these people who watched all these events actually, trans, actually, actually come about. It, it would have been so challenging for them to take this one upon whom they had pinned their hopes for eternal life. That had been his message to them over and over. Come to me because I'm going to give you eternal life. Come to me because I'm going to give you eternal life. They had followed that message. They had bought that product. They had swallowed that bait. And now that man is dying. We've got to grapple with his death, though, because his death is the key 
to his being able to give that life to others. That's what Jesus had been hinting at all along, but that they still hadn't recognized and that they wouldn't recognize until he was alive again. He had to die so that he could give them eternal life. Had to recognize that his death was not a threat to his ability to give life, but the very means by which he would give life. Now that's the, that's the sort of veil hanging over the story we're going to unpack. The first scenes to this story, the ones we're going to cover today, set us up really well for that theme though. The, the, the first scenes to the story, the ones we're going to cover today, really unpack the lives of just two characters. Not the lives, the, the, the role of two different characters. It's a compare and contrast section to this story. The two characters are Jesus himself facing arrest and everything that he knew was going to come after, and Peter, his one-time staunchest ally, the one who'd said there was nothing and no one who could ever take him away from Jesus, who would give up his life even for Jesus. The contrast between Jesus facing death with courage and Peter falling away, denying Jesus at his hour of need. This story has an incredible insight for us that we've got to grasp now so that we'll understand everything else that's coming in the, through the end of John. This story of the arrest and Jesus' initial trial sets us up for what, the way we're supposed to read everything else about his death. Jesus dies on purpose. No one takes his life, he gives it. And he dies, he dies precisely for the very people who are going to abandon him over and over again. He dies for people like Peter. And he dies for people like you. And in those two themes, Jesus' intentional death for people who can't even stand with him in his hour of need, we see the beauty of the gospel come together and we're set up to see everything John wants us to see in the next several chapters. As, those are the details we want to unpack together as we walk through these initial scenes. Like I said, we're going to take it slow. I'm going to start with verses 1 to 27 of chapter 18. Now, I'm going to ask you to stand with me while I read this part of the story as a way of, of symbolizing our respect for God's Word, the life that we find in it. I'm going to read this story and pick up in verse 1 of chapter 18. This is just, excuse me, just as Jesus has finished the long conversation with His disciples that had taken up the last several chapters of John. This is the Word of the Lord. When Jesus had spoken these words, He went out with His disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden, which He and His disciples entered. Now, Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. 
When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he'd spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest, but Peter stood outside of the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of his, this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now, the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he'd said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I'm not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once a rooster crowed. This is God's word. You can be seated. This story is a story of courage, a story of cowardice, and a story of compassion. Every gospel writer tells his stories a little bit differently. If you have any experience at all in reading the gospels, you know this is true. It's not that they're different stories have different details that contradict each other. It's not that they're disagreeing about what went down. It's that each author of stories about Jesus had a reason he was writing, had somebody he was writing to, 
had certain things he wanted to bring to the surface about Jesus' life that those people needed to hear. So it's like the different sides of a diamond. It's the different facets of something beautiful. Each story brings out the nuance and beauty in its own way. And the emphasis in John's story of Jesus' death is crystal clear. The emphasis in John's story is on Jesus' strength, on Jesus' deity, on his willing and all-knowing resolve to drink the cup that his father prepared for him. So, for example, some of the other gospel writers, they describe a very different garden scene. Not different because it's a disagreement, different because it's just a different part of the story that John's leaving out. They described a very human Jesus in the garden agonizing over what he knows is coming, over what he knows he must do, but dreads. They have Jesus asking the Father, please, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. John doesn't record that scene, not because he doesn't think it happened, but because he wanted to emphasize something else, something you might miss if the only thing you think about Jesus' death is that he went to it with agonizing, soul-searching questions. He wants you to see that Jesus was in absolute control of everything that happened leading up to his death because Jesus intended to die. He died on purpose. Now, I, I want to point you some of the details so you can see what I'm talking about here. Some of, the, some of the details John includes in his story to make a special point that Jesus died with courage on purpose in control of everything that was happening. The details are all over it. The first one is in, is in the choice of the place where he would be met by these soldiers. After their dinner and their long final conversation together, Jesus leads his friends out of Jerusalem, leads them down through a neighboring valley into a garden on the slopes of what other gospel writers tell us is the Mount of Olives. It's a familiar place, John tells us. They've been there before. Maybe this is the place where they even sleep when they come to Jerusalem. They've made several trips in. We're never told anywhere else that they had had a house in Jerusalem that they liked to sleep at. Could be that this was a friend to their movement that had opened up this garden and and his property for them to use. It's familiar one way or the other. Jesus didn't choose this familiar place because it was sentimental. He chose this familiar place so that he could be found. We're told a couple of times Judas knew the place. Judas knew the place. Jesus chose a place Judas knew. Jesus wanted to be found. Judas raises a troop of soldiers. They would have been on hand because of the feast. They were Roman soldiers as well as Jewish ones. They would have been there to make sure there was no rioting when all of these thousands and thousands of people come into Jerusalem from all over the Roman world. Wouldn't have been hard to come by. At least the second detail, though, that John wants us to see about Jesus. You don't hide the approach of what could have been hundreds of troops on a dark night in an undeveloped country where the sounds would have been minimal, the stars would have been brilliant against a dark sky, where you're up on the side of a hill looking down on a valley. You think those guys snuck up on Jesus? They didn't sneak up on Jesus. He would have heard the sounds of their talking, the thud of their boots, 
clanking of the metal and their armor and their weapons. He would have seen the torches coming. He would have known exactly who they were coming for. And he would have had plenty of time to run. Jesus wanted to get found. Sets up another detail. Jesus' posture towards his attackers. I already said this was no sting operation. They didn't spring a trap on him. But when they come, Jesus goes to meet them. Do you notice that? Verse 4 of of chapter 18 is the key verse hanging over all the other details that John's going to give us. Jesus, hearing those who would take him to his death approaching, knowing all that was about to happen. That's what verse 4 says. Knowing all that was about to happen came forward. He marched to meet them. What did he know was going to happen? Jesus knew that he would be publicly humiliated. He knew that he would be beaten within an inch of his life. He knew that he'd be stripped naked in front of everybody. That his body would be tortured. That he'd be pierced. He knew that he would struggle for every one of his last breaths until he died by asphyxiation. He knew that beyond all of this physical torture, something far worse was coming for him. He knew that he would be separated from his father. This is the one that Jesus has referred to over and over again as the person who, apart from whom he does nothing. I came because my father sent me. I haven't done anything that my father didn't tell me to do. The father and I are one. We're one. The father was his life. And he knew he was about to be separated from the source of all goodness and beauty, all light and life, from the one for whom he lived. He knew all that was about to happen to him. And Jesus came forward. No man takes the life of the Word made flesh. Jesus lays his life down. The remaining details in the scene just reinforce the image. It's like every detail is making this point. What he actually ends up saying to the, to the soldiers, that's one of the more striking ones, isn't it? Did you guys notice that when you read it? Who do you want? He's the one who engages them. Who do you want? Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth, they say. I am he. That's how my translation captures it anyway. But the word that he's actually using here, it's the exact same word that's used to translate God's disclosure of himself to Moses. Moses asks God in that scene where God is calling him to go to his people to tell them he's going to set them free. Who will I tell them has sent me? How will they know they can trust me? And he says, tell them I am. Who do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says, I am. And the soldiers who have him outnumbered hundreds to one maybe. 
The soldiers who came ready with weapons. The soldiers who have every advantage. Hear his words. Fall down in awe. They're taking Jesus' life away? No. No, Jesus is in absolute control. He continues in control of the conversation. He's negotiating the protection of his followers. I've already told you I'm the one you want. Let these go so that what he said earlier would come true. I didn't lose anybody you gave me, Father. I kept them all safe. He, he keeps his followers from, re, from, from resisting. He tells Peter, put it away, Peter, put it away. I've got to drink the cup. I've got to drink the cup. I came to do my Father's will. I don't do anything my Father didn't tell me to do. I came to drink the cup. The last detail I'll mention is, is the representation of himself before the high priest. So they, they arrest him. They bind the one who spoke the world into existence in some petty little chains. They carry him off to face a man whose days were numbered, whose life was a fleeting breath, to stand in judgment over the one who spoke and created light. Annas was not himself the current high priest, but Sort of an emeritus position once you'd had it. You always sort of had it. Because his family members had taken it from him, he was still sort of the patriarch at the time. and They wanted to get his take on it. So the informal process, not the formal trial that would have been necessary, but they wanted to give Annas a chance to work him over a little bit. Jesus stands before him. And what's clear from the way that the conversation unfolds, starting in verse 19, what's clear is that they really, want, they really want to know theological questions. They want their theological questions answered. Later on, they're going to tell Pilate, you've got to take care of this guy because he's a political threat. He goes around calling himself the king of the Jews. He's going to try to start some sort of riot against you. But here, they aren't concerned with politics. They don't ask Jesus what his ambitions are. They ask him about his disciples. Who's following you? How many people are following you? They ask him about his teaching. They want to know the content of it. They want to get him to back down from it. Their goal is to get Jesus to expose him. They want to confirm what he said, maybe talk him down, maybe expose him as a fraud, because that's the way to rob him of his power. If you can get him to admit openly, publicly, that he shouldn't have said the things that he said, well, then his followers are going to not believe in him anymore, and his power's gone. That's what's going on in that conversation. But Jesus doesn't play their games. He's in control of this conversation too. And he doesn't back down. I've spoken openly, he says. Everything I've said is represented in the things that I've said publicly. In the places where you guys come to meet and hang out. If you want to know what I've said, you've heard it for yourself. You can go ask. Just throw a rock and go ask somebody. Chances are they were there. Sounds a little bit like he's not cooperating, but that's not what we're meant to see here. He's cooperating fine. He's just not going to play their games. He's not going to back down. He's not going to try to spin what he said so that it sounds better. That's what I'd do under pressure. I'd try to 
maybe throw what I'd said in a different light. Oh, no, you just were understanding me wrong. This, think about it this way. Jesus does none of that. He's not going to rehash it. I said what I said. I said it where you could hear it, anybody else could hear it. I stand by it. He's in complete control of the trial just as he's in control of everything else. And what you're supposed to see in all these details is a man of incredible, even divine courage who dies on purpose, who knows all that's going to happen and comes forward. Now, as Jesus is being examined by the Jewish authorities, Peter is getting an examination of his own. I said before that Peter and Jesus are the two key characters here in the story. I want to take you back to the first scene to show you how this contrast unfolds. It's a, it's a masterful storytelling technique that John's using here. I don't want you to miss it. It's really beautiful. In this confrontation uh, with the, the folks who've come to arrest Jesus, this confrontation in the garden... It's almost like a, a Spartacus-style setup. Do you guys know Spartacus? The classic movie from like 50 years ago. I think Charlton Heston is in it. I forget. He's in most of those epics, you know, from the Roman era. Uh, it's, a, it's a story of the... Just curious. Hey, raise your hand if you've seen Spartacus. Let me see. Oh, that's sad. Wow, it's Kirk Douglas, and it's not... And, and like, oh, man, like maybe a third of you have seen it. Oh, gosh. You guys have got to, you've got to go watch this movie. It's phenomenal. Spartacus is a story of a, a true story of, uh, of a, a slave in the Roman era who led a slave revolt against Rome. Of thousands of slaves that went to war against the Roman Empire and caused a lot of trouble before he ended up getting killed like most upri- uh, 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 uprisings. He was squelched um, and made an example of but there's this powerful scene in the movie. I don't know if this is historically accurate or not. There's this powerful scene at the end of the movie where they've captured him in his band. Uh, where they figured out where they were hiding, where they pitched their tents or whatever. And they, they, they come and they trap him and they arrest him. It's a lot like this scene with Jesus. And they want to know who Spartacus is. So they line them all up. You've got Spartacus and all his closest followers. And they come up and they say, Who is Spartacus? Where is Spartacus? We want Spartacus. One of his men steps forward out of the line and says, I am Spartacus. And then another man steps forward out of the line and says, I am Spartacus. Another steps forward. I am Spartacus. All of them do it. That's kind of what you're rooting for in this story. If you didn't know how it, how it ended, Jesus has been pounced on by these guys who've come to take him, and you love Jesus, and you've seen this man who is good, who's full of grace, compassion that's unheard of and unknown and you root for him what you want is for his followers to step up i am jesus of nazareth i am jesus of nazareth and peter almost has his spartacus moment i don't know what was motivating peter when he did what he did but at some point either from bravado or some sort of fearful self-defense Maybe a fit of rage, he whips out what would have probably been a small dagger and randomly cuts off this poor guy's ear. <laughs> Old Malchus. But from that early rash defense, the story turns back and forth. 
between Jesus and Peter to show that Peter's temporary, almost Spartacus-style moment didn't last. It's almost like a modern movie technique. I hadn't really noticed it before this week. You don't get this a lot in ancient storytelling. What John is doing, it's almost like he's got a camera and he's showing you one scene going on here. Meanwhile, over here, simultaneously, this is going on. Meanwhile, over here, he's showing you Jesus. And we've seen what he's showing you about Jesus. He stands firm. He stands tall. He doesn't back down. At the same time, over here, meanwhile, Peter. Peter. Servant girl catches Peter on his way into this garden outside wherever it was that they were interviewing Jesus. Another disciple, unnamed, most think probably John, who's writing the gospel, leaving his name out, maybe because he's humble, known to the high priest, gets entry into this garden. He wants to get his buddy in. They've been trailing along behind, just trying to keep tabs on what's going on. On his way in, a little servant girl has been watching the door grabs Peter and says, you're not one of his disciples, are you? This is the Peter, the good confession in the other Gospels. Other Gospels tell us that famous story where Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, some say a prophet. Who do you say that I am, Peter? And Peter says, you're the Christ. This is the Peter of the good confession in John chapter 6. Back in John 6, the hundreds of people who had been following Jesus are starting to fall away like flies. They're not getting what they signed up for. Jesus looks at his inner circle and says to them, are are you too going to go away? And it's Peter who steps up and says, Lord, you have the words of eternal life. Where are we going to go? It's Peter who on that very night, just hours earlier, had told Jesus that he would lay down his life for him. It's this Peter that gets grabbed up by a little servant girl. Asked if he is with the man who's about to lay down his life. The stage is set for another bold pronouncement. But the Peter who promised he'd lay down his life for Jesus won't even own up to him, to a little girl. Peter says, I am not. Maybe for Peter, the promise of eternal life, the words of eternal life just couldn't square with the fact that this would-be life giver is about to die himself. Maybe he's thinking, if Jesus can't protect his own life, how can he give life to me? How can this suffering I'm seeing balance out with the good things I want from this guy? Camera swings back to Jesus. Jesus is standing before Annas. He's being asked to back down. He refuses. He gets beat over it. 
Jesus is giving his own good confession. Meanwhile, Peter's out in the courtyard warming himself by the, court, by the charcoal fire. And maybe, look, let's just give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe, maybe Peter was caught off guard by the girl's question and he's still a little discombobulated by everything that's going on, you know? But by this point, he's had time to think and reflect, maybe even feel guilty for not owning Jesus when the girl asked him to. He's standing there warming himself by this charcoal fire. And now he gets another chance. You can imagine, it's plural, they said to him, you can imagine people standing around the fire, maybe the light from the fire is just casting enough light onto his face and the flickering light he seems familiar to them they're talking amongst themselves about it somebody works up the courage to say so are, are you one of these this man's disciples you're not one of his disciples are you Peter denied it again I'm not then another time a guy who was a relative maybe even maybe a cousin of some, or some such of the guy who loses his ear you don't forget the guy who cut off your cousin's ear he sees his face and he says, no, I was there in the garden. Weren't, didn't I see you there in the garden? Again, Peter denies it. And at once the rooster crowed. See, Jesus, just a few hours earlier, Jesus had told him this was going to happen. Jesus had told him he'd be a coward. And friends, this is where the courage of Jesus, who went to death on purpose... And the cowardice of Peter come together to give us an image of the beautiful compassion that drives this death and everything else we're going to see in the story. When John said in verse 4 of chapter 18 that Jesus knew everything that was going to happen to him, I think he also meant that Jesus knew that Peter was going to deny him. And Jesus came forward. Because he loved Peter to the end. Because he loved the one who would not stand with him. And Jesus doesn't die a courageous death. Despite the cowardice of his friends. He dies a courageous death because of the cowardice of his friends. He had to die for his friends because they were cowards. The reason he lays down his life on purpose is that he knows who he's dealing with. He knows what they need. And what they need is not some model to teach them how to be different. They need somebody to save them from what they are. John tells us the story of Jesus' courage and the story of Peter's cowardice for precisely the same reason. That we would believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing we'd have life in his name. This first stage in the story is the key to understanding everything else about Jesus' death. We've got to know it as we move ahead that he dies on purpose for people like Peter who don't deserve it. 
Jesus' death was not the death of a martyr who couldn't stop himself from being killed for a good cause. His death was not the death of a selfless hero who laid down his life for his friends so that they could live because the battle just got too rough and it needed to be done. His was the death of a sacrifice, of a lamb that takes away the sins of the world, a death of compassion. If he'd actually died for someone who deserved it, you might respect him for it. You might even understand why he did it. But this was altogether different. This is what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 5. When he says, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, but perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now here's the point I want to leave you with. This is it. Like all of John's stories, this story is chosen to invite us in. To find ourselves as characters in the story. Remember, Every story that John chooses to tell us, he chooses to tell us not to entertain us, but to persuade us. That's what he says in John 20. We've been quoting it all through the series. The things that I've written, I've written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing you might have life in his name. These two stories, these, this contrast between Jesus and Peter, both sides of it, they're here so you would believe and have life in his name. So why would he tell us These stories. Why would he tell us such an unflattering story about Peter, one of the heroes of the early church? John tells us an unflattering story about Peter. I don't think, first and foremost, so that we won't be like him. He tells us this story about Peter, writing to people who know Peter Peter received the grace of Jesus so that people like us would look at this story and know that Jesus died for us too. So that you'll know the same Jesus that died for one he knew would deny him died for you knowing that you would deny him. One of the most powerful Uh, images of self-sacrifice that I know of is in the the famous war movie Saving Private Ryan. Maybe you guys have seen it. I'm going to, it's a spoiler alert, okay? So if you haven't seen it, I don't know what to do except apologize to you. (laughs) It's a story of a, of a, a special team of rangers in World War II who are sent in behind enemy lines to try to recover the son of a woman who'd already lost three sons in battle. She had four sons, three of them dead, one left. He's behind enemy lines. Nobody knows where he is. They've got to go get him. It's a brutal movie. There's a, there's a lot of things that go wrong. A lot of people die. In the end, they find him. Spoiler. They find him, but things are not all well. They're surrounded. They don't have the numbers. 
And the man who led the effort, a Captain John Miller, is shot in the final battle, trying to protect this man and get him home to his mama. And he dies. And as he's dying, this death laid down to protect the life of someone else. His last words with his last breath to this man that he saved are, earn it. In a whisper, earn this, he says. And in the last scene in the movie is this man who was saved as an old man in a military cemetery standing over the grave of the man who had given his life for him. Weeping, broken down, begging his wife to tell him that he had been a good man. Tell me I've been a good man. Friends, Jesus will never tell you to earn it. He will never put on you the burden of earning his sacrifice because you can't carry it. And the only thing you have to do, the only thing you can do to claim what Jesus has done is let him do it. And he demands your life. That's for sure. But not as a payment for what he's done. But as an expression of love for the one who did what you can't. He knows you like he knows Peter. He knows you inside and out, the things you've hidden from everybody else. He knows them. He's not afraid of them. He paid for you anyway. He didn't buy you like a lemon that he, did, that he didn't understand when he bought it. He bought you for the beauty he knew he could put into you. He knew what he bought and he paid for it in full. But only if you'll let him. Only if you'll trust him. Will you do that today? Father, we can't unless you help us. We so badly want to deserve what we get. But what we deserve is death. What we deserve is what Peter deserved. Would you give us what Jesus deserved instead? And would you give us the ability to claim him, to trust him, and rest in him? Apart from that gift, we have no hope. So we pray to you, our Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.